morning, church. We are here to uh, learn from God's word. Um, so let's do that together. Let's pray before we go ahead. Dear Lord, we thank you for the truth that is revealed to us through scripture. Pray, Lord, that this morning, um, by your spirit, we would learn and grow closer to you and be reminded of our sin and our need for a savior. Lord, speak to us this morning. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I trust you have your Bibles open in front of you. If you don't, there should be one right in front of you in the pews. Um, we are going to look at a few examples of God and God's work in this passage here. So first, we're going to take through something that we see of God, and that is that God will use you and anyone for his glory, and he will strengthen those gifts that he has already given for his people and for his church. We see that through Saul. Second example, we see uh, Saul as a, as a good indicator of what it looks like to go to various areas and first seek out other disciples. So we go somewhere new. Are we seeking out fellowship and brothers where we go? Are we trying to do it on our own? And the last example we're going to see through this passage is going to be um, what the disciples were gracious to Saul, and Barnabas is a great example as well as an encourager to make sure Saul can continue his ministry, which we know as he becomes Paul is a great and mighty ministry in which God uses. Okay, so last week we uh, read about this conversion of Saul of Tarsus, and this was a man who was traveling across the areas and persecuting Christians. He was a Jewish leader, so he was uh, knowledgeable. He knew the Old Testament. He just did not believe that this Jesus guy was the Messiah. And so what he did, he was scared of the power that was gaining from Jesus. And so what he was doing, he was killing Christians, having them imprisoned and killed. And then last week, we saw that Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus and saved him. Thanks be to God for that. Saul of Tarsus, the great persecutor of the church, saved. And we learned through that. We said, there's no way that God could save this man. And we thought, who are those people in our lives that we see? There's no way. They're just too far beyond. But this is a great example Nothing is beyond the grips of God. Saul himself was saved. The man who said, give me your Christians so I may bind them up and bring them to the chief priests, now says, Jesus is the Son of God. Wow, that's awesome. That is awesome. In this week's passage, we get to see what comes next as Saul is reconciled to that very church that he persecuted. So here's a quick summary of what we're going to go through, what we just read. Um, Saul reaches his intended destination in Damascus. Remember, that's where he was headed to persecute Christians. Well, he's successful. He reaches Damascus, but with a different mission in mind, right? Now he is preaching boldly the name of Jesus. So he makes it to the right place. He makes it to the synagogues where he intended to go. But instead of persecuting and and calling Christians out, he joins them. Immediately, it says in the text, immediately he started preaching 
Jesus. And then what we see further down is that he spends some time away. This is after many days. He spends some time away, and we learn that he actually spends this in Arabia with the Lord, and we'll get, get to that soon. Then he returns back to Damascus, and when he returns, the Jews want him killed. And so he's not getting a very warm welcome, and the disciples are a little bit scared. So they help him flee. The disciples, they help him flee to Jerusalem. He arrives in Jerusalem. He meets with Peter. More people want him dead. The disciples help him again flee off to Tarsus. And then we see that there's peace in the church. Verse 20, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and he immediately proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying these words, he is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. Again, this is just so miraculous that those words would ever come out of Saul's mouth. How amazing. This same Saul that ravaged the church, that word ravaged that we saw earlier, that was there for the stoning of Stephen. Here's our first point. Redemption by God. First way to look at this, seeing Saul arriving and preaching boldly and preaching immediately, our first takeaway is that us as Christians, when we're converted, should immediately go out with zeal and preach the good news. And yes, that's true. And with that zeal, we should go out and proclaim the gospel. And so Saul sets the example here. But God is the real star because he created Saul. And so what the real redemption is, isn't that all of us should be turn into Saul and be this charismatic preacher and go out. That's who God created Saul to be. Now all of us are to go and proclaim the gospel in our own way. But not all of us can be out doing it in the flashy way. We're to do it in relationship, behind the scenes, coworkers, neighbors. We're all called in different ways. So first, yes, it's important that we go out and, with zeal and do this. But secondly, it's also important that God redeems his creation for good. God created Saul specifically that way. And he is using that same zeal for good. Because when Saul is reconciled to God here, God begins to redeem and restore for his good purposes. Saul was an A-plus student of Gamaliel, who had the same zeal at the time, the same passion. He's just, he's a passionate guy. He goes from being passionate about persecuting Christians to then becoming one and keeping that same passion but directing it in a different way. God redeems that passion. God redeems that gift that Saul has. And we have to think about Saul too. Saul didn't just, um, you know, send others. He wasn't just a good leader who sent others to go persecute Christians. He was so passionate about this. He's like, I got to be there. I got to be there for the persecutions. I think this is something that I have to do. I'm passionate about this. He was there for it. He himself was enjoying the process. But God flipped him. In his salvation in Jesus, something changed. He was blind and now he can see. The scales fell off of his eyes. He can see the risen Jesus. So we see Saul, who was a leader, a natural leader, with great knowledge of the Old Testament. And he was a man of true character. 
God took that leadership, that knowledge, and redeemed it for the good of his church. In Saul's case before, although his convictions were sincere, he was using them against God. And so this is what this means for you. Before you were converted, God gave you gifts. He created you intentionally. He knit you together in your mother's womb. Everything about you is so intentional. Sometimes we take those good gifts, that good creation that God has for us, and we point it in the, point it in the wrong way. We're not using it for Jesus. We need to repent. We need to redirect ourselves and our gifts and everything that God has given us to Christ, to his glory, to his mission, to his church. And so we see that here. More often than not, we're not really using our full gifts for the kingdom of God. And so the point here is not that all of us should go on to be excellent preachers up front and writers of, you know, letters and uh, leaders of everything else, but rather that God wants to use the gifts that he's given you for the good of the church and the good of his people. We know that the body of Christ does not operate very well if everyone is a stand-at-the-front charismatic preacher because there's a lot of things that happen in this church that go unrecognized as part of the body of who we are, of believers. In fact, it works out that the kids today in their kids' ministry are learning of the body of Christ and how we need all parts of the body, led by the head, who is Jesus, to go out and do his good things. The church needs the servant-hearted people who do the behind-the-scenes little recognition work. I know many of them are here today. Communion assistants, Cleaners, food preppers, treasurers, maintenance teams, administrators, camera operators, and the list goes on. They're all sitting among you today, helping this church grow and the gospel go forward. Listen, if God has gifted you with any natural ability and you can recognize that, I pray that you recognize that, that what is of God is in you, or passions in a certain area, you need to surrender that to him. Give it to Jesus. Give it all. You know, I, I actually know how many gifted people there are in this church. I've been here for coming on three years, and I've gotten to meet lots and lots of you, and I know what a variety of gifts God has given everyone in this church. And I think that's growing. I think we're all using those more. There's more and more ministries popping up. But I know the excuse a lot of times of not getting involved and not being a part of what God is doing in the church, in his body. You know, the excuse is often time-related, right? Oh, I don't have the time. I don't have the, the bandwidth to do that. I'm so busy everywhere else. Getting the kids to all their extracurriculars or uh, making sure all the grandkids, all of them get their birthday card and all of them get their back-to-school gifts. And it, it keeps busy, right? We're busy, busy. Come on, we need to offer ourselves as living sacrifices to the church. That should be first. 
We should seek the kingdom of God first, and all else will be added to us. Trust that. Trust in God's promise for you. If you serve him and serve the church, as the rest of those things will be added. Now, if you can sense the Holy Spirit convicting you in some way to step up, be more involved, even if it's inconvenient, trust that God's promise is greater than any of your hesitation or anxiety. Trust in God with your time, your money, with the good gifts that he's given you. 1 Peter 4.10 says this, each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in various forms. And Hebrews 6.10 says, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continued to help him. Be comforted by that. God is not unjust. He'll remember the work that you did for him and for his people. And so whether that's inside the church infrastructure or elsewhere to bless others, God wants to redeem those things that he has given you, those gifts for the good of his kingdom and the pushing forth of the gospel so that others may be saved and respond to the good news that we have of Jesus. That's what God is doing with Saul. He's redeeming and restoring that same passion and leadership before his good purposes for his kingdom. Let's read on. Verse 21, all who heard him were amazed and said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul then increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus. This is the first instance of doubt that we see and confusion over what is being seen and heard, right? Saul shows up. He had a mission. Initially, his mission was persecution of Christians. He shows up to that same place he intended, but he's saying, Jesus is the Son of God. Confusing for the disciples there. They were probably packing their things, getting ready to hide from Saul. Meanwhile, he shows up in the synagogues and says, I'm on your team. Jesus is the Son of God. So it says here, it, they're, they're questioning, is this not the same man who wreaked havoc in Jerusalem? Is not, this is the same guy, isn't it? Saul of Tarsus. Has he not come here again for this purpose? To bound up Christians and take them before the chief priests? Look, it says all who heard him were amazed. And so yes, there was this kind of Worship and glory to God saying, wow, God saved Saul. Yes, they were amazed and it was a, a form of worship for them. It says they were amazed, but then what they said brings across confusion. Isn't this the guy? It's one thing to say, isn't this, isn't this the guy who was persecuting Christians? Thanks be to God for his salvation. But then they go on and say, has he not come here for this purpose? Guys, are we sure about this? Can we be sure that he's saved? Well, there's this doubt. Isn't this that same guy? 
Yet despite being questioned, we see that Saul increases all the more in strength, despite being questioned. And then to see Saul being strengthened in this situation, the Jews are confused. They were confounded. They were puzzled. So what's going on here? Even the disciples are a little bit hesitant. Yet he's growing in strength. What's happening? Even though it seems like Saul was truly on his own here, a little shaky with the disciples, the Jews weren't a fan of what he was doing, he still grew. And soon we'll figure out which side he's truly on. We'll come to see that disciples got on board as well. Into the next chunk, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They, the Jews, were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Now I want to look here, before we get too much into this, um, a little bit about this when many days had passed, okay? Many days is very vague. But if you want to turn your Bibles to Galatians 1, verse 13 to 18. Galatians 1, 13 to 18. Now this is a chance where we get to see a little bit more detail about what's going on here. This is part of Saul's story, the beginning parts, which is very important. Um, and he sheds a little bit more, more light on this time in his life. He says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age of my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I may preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem, stayed in Damascus, to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and then returned to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up into Jerusalem to visit Cephas and uh, remained with him 15 days. Okay, so what we're seeing here is that this many days in our passage it's actually three years so that's many days i'm not going to do the math you guys can figure that out depends if it's a leap year i don't know um but three years and i think this is important to the story i think it's important to know that saul had this time he wouldn't just come in we see he immediately started preaching boldly in the synagogues and we're like wow he was right to it and he just like probably went and wrote all the rest of his letters right after that no he spent three years in Arabia, and at this time, Arabia and Damascus were actually quite close, and so this wasn't a far distance for him. And so it's important to know this as we read it. I think it brings a lot of light to the story of Saul. And what we also see is there's not many big stories from Saul in this time, this three years away. There's not big revivals, and, and there's not big stories written in scripture about what was happening that didn't say the church was growing hugely in Arabia or anything like that. So what we have to believe here is actually that, that, that Paul was, or Saul was being quiet, contemplating, spending time in obscurity, out of the spotlight, to be quiet with the Lord, 
It's interesting to think here that about three years is what the 12 disciples had with Jesus. And Saul takes time, three years, to spend with the Lord to prepare for his ministry. This is also where we see that Saul says, many mysteries were made known to him by the revelation of Jesus Christ. So this is where he's really grinding out the faith. And no matter what happened in that three years, all the mystery that we have, he did return to Damascus, but not for long, because now the Jews wanted to kill him. He was gone for three years. Comes back. Not a warm welcome. Think about that. The same Jews that he belonged to previously now wanted him dead. Clearly, they were only united for their violence towards Christians. No desire to win him back. No personal outreach or compassion. They just wanted him dead. He was a danger. See, that should stand out to us as believers. That should stand out to us in a way that we should be different. Because when one of ours walks away from the faith, we don't just immediately want them dead. We're not just united by something shallow. We're united in the gospel. We're united in Christ. We are made family. We're brothers and sisters. The Jews wanted him dead. One of ours walks away. A lost sheep goes astray. We should take example and hunt them down, bring them back, sling them over our shoulder and bring them back into the church, into God's home, where they belong. That's where we're set apart. That's what the Jews didn't have here. No compassion, just, you know what? Kill them. We should be different. When someone's against us, should bring them back. The Jews, they were hoping to kill him. They watched day and night for who knows how long and all the anxiety. Saul can't go anywhere without wanting to be killed. Word getting out of where he is. The disciples came up with a plan. They decided he can't stay here. He's got to go. We got to lead him out. But if we look in the text here, we actually see Saul's leadership had come into play, okay? So here, here's where we see it. It says, The Jews were watching the gates by day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall. Not the disciples, but his disciples. Saul had gained his own little crew of disciples that he was bringing up, that he was teaching. He was pointing them to Jesus. And there was a, a loyalty here. Clearly, God had redeemed this leadership that we talked about Saul having, right? We see that here. He actually had his own disciples. And that's, that's important to know. That means that's our indication that they, they got out of their confusion, they got out of their hesitation, and they were on his team. They were supporting him. Enough to send him away and send him off into his next mission. And this is a, a beautiful sending off because it's, so humble. <laughs> it's a very humble sending off. This is the mighty, powerful, once Saul of Tarsus being put away in secret into a basket, likely used for laundry, and lowered down and sent off. Not that glorious of a send off. 
Paul wrote about this in 2 Corinthians to describe it as one of his first real perils of hardship for Jesus' sake. Some 20 years after his escape from Damascus, he wrote of all the things he went through. And Paul remembers this basket as maybe his apprenticeship to persecution, the first little bits of persecution, because he'd go on to face much more. And it was as if he said, this is how my ministry began, and so this is how it's going to continue. Persecution, wanting to be killed. This is a powerful contrast, like I said, between the mighty Saul of Tarsus and Paul the Apostle, who then he becomes a man full of power and authority directed against God's people and now escaped humbly hiding in a basket. There's nothing triumphant about escaping from a city in a basket. And so Saul went out to see the disciples in Jerusalem on to the next place. Next we see that Saul attempts to join the disciples. Again, he arrives, okay? Just like he arrived in Damascus, attempting to join the disciples. But they were afraid. Surprise, surprise. And didn't believe him at first because this is the guy. Isn't this the guy? But Barnabas, known as the son of encouragement, stands up for Saul in front of Peter and says, this is also the guy who's been showing the fruit of his conversion preaching boldly in the name of Jesus. And so let's just keep going through the text here. He went out and he continued to preach boldly in the synagogues in front of the very people that he came from, the same Jews that he was with. He's preaching boldly. And that's what's so bold about it, right? Is he's preaching Jesus in front of these same people that he was joined with in the killing of Christians. Now here's the result. Fellow disciples accepted him graciously. And the Jews, they wanted him dead. Again, remember when the Lord said to Saul that he would suffer? Well, we're certainly seeing that here. And with this new support of the disciples, Saul was then brought out again. They said, you can't stay here, it's too dangerous. We're brought out again down to Caesarea, which is a port city where he could be shipped off to Tarsus, where he'd spend the next eight years Okay, summary. Conversion of Saul. Miracle. Amazing works of God. Thank the Lord for that. Then he goes in preaching boldly at Damascus. He's wanted dead for that. Shipped off for three years. Spends some time with the Lord. Goes and preaches boldly somewhere else in Jerusalem. He's wanted dead again. And then he's sent off again. That's a lot of wanting to be dead. A lot of murder wanted. But a lot of preaching boldly and being sent off. And if that's the story, then great. How fun. We see the pattern, right? There's clearly some repeat stuff happening here. Death threats, then ascending off. Death threats, then ascending off. And that pattern would continue to happen for uh, the Apostle Paul many times, right? Throughout his ministry. But here's our second point. We want to look at the grace of the disciples and Barnabas in this moment. Did you notice that other pattern? Let me help you out. Saul arrives in two towns after his conversion. Does not receive immediate acceptance from fellow believers. But can you blame them? Probably not. You know, if I were put in that scenario, my reaction would probably be the same. I don't think I'd say, hey, welcome. Good to have you. Did you bring your chains? You going to bind us up? No, it's not. You're going to be scared. You're going to be hesitant. It's obviously a lack of faith in God and what God has done. 
or we'd all have it. That very same person that creates stress in your life is now a convert. Are there people in your life that rub you the wrong way so badly that you don't even pray for their souls? For their souls to be transformed by God? Pretty convicting. And when you think about that for a second, maybe let the Spirit make you aware, aware of who it is that you should be praying for. Are there people that you really just don't care to pray for? Well, God says we should pray for those who persecute us. It's a tough one. Now, maybe you're better than that, and you do pray for those who persecute you. You pray for those who make your life difficult, and that's good on you. Maybe you think, wouldn't it be so cool if that person was saved? I'm going to pray for them. Wouldn't it be awesome if they were a fellow believer? Well, of course it'd be awesome. But then what would it take for that same persecutor, if they were saved, what would it take for you to actually believe their conversion was real? How much hesitation would you have when that person who makes your life the most difficult, the things they say or do in your life, keep you up at night. The things they say or do in your life, you bring them back home and take it out on your family. That person holds a hard place in your heart. And if they were saved, would you immediately believe their conversion? Would you trust God that it was real? Well, that's a real question for us. Okay, one last scenario. We're going to say, wouldn't it be great if uh, my boss was a Christian? Wouldn't that be awesome if my boss was a Christian? You know, he's making my life real hard at work. Wouldn't it be way better if he was a Christian and had those same convictions of God and the same grace and the same fruit of the Spirit in his leadership over me? Wouldn't that be awesome if I had a Christian boss? Well, I want to explore that a little bit and ask you if that's, if that's you, if you have that at work or somewhere in your life, are you actually praying for that specific person to be saved or are you praying that God would just bring along a Christian boss? Are you praying that, that person would actually be converted? It'd be great to have a Christian boss. Are you praying for their salvation or that God would replace them with someone who is Christian? Just ways to explore our heart, right? When we think about these Things, the people who make our life difficult and praying for them. The one that likes your, makes your daily life miserable. So here we see this example of these disciples who had all the right reasons to not want Saul part of their circle. They're like, okay, God, you saved him. That's awesome. You are amazing and powerful. But does he have to be part of our church? Does he have to be in our small group? Like, do I have to open my, my, my house to him and feed him a meal? We've got a good thing going here. Really, like, does he have to be here? Saul had Stephen killed, which was a friend of many of these disciples. Then just a short time later, Saul shows up and says, Hey, now that I'm your brother, let's be friends. 
And the great thing here that we should be encouraged by is the disciples in a short time said, sure, come join our lunch table. That's grace. That's an example of God's grace in the disciples. I think sometimes I can be a bit harsh in my sarcasm sometimes, and I would probably say something like, um, oh, look who's taking Jesus seriously now. Good for you. You know, why couldn't you do that before you killed all our people and Stephen? Right? That's why I'm not the example here. I'm not, not the one on display. These disciples accepting Saul led to a massive change in history. Get to think about how these disciples really protected Saul, took him in, when they had all the right reasons not to. And then we end up with the Apostle Paul, who writes such wonderful parts of the Bible, some of my favorites, we see in his letters. He would be the one for the Gentiles. So what's our role in changing church history? should be gracious, gracious to the newly converted. You never know how God will redeem and restore that person and use them. Certainly someone did that for me 12 years ago when I became a Christian at 17. And I didn't have a big change in, in life from the outside. If you knew me before that, you knew that I was heavily involved in extracurriculars at school and doing lots of leadership and I was already speaking at events at the city and so this was nothing new for me to to have these characteristics about me it's not like God really had one of those crazy conversion stories but what we do see here is that God used his gifts that he already gave me and he redeemed them for his good and later on without me ever knowing I'd become a, pa a pastor at a church and be here with you guys. God used that. He redeemed what he gave me at birth. And he redirected it. And I'm grateful for that. So are we being gracious to the unconverted? And the newly converted? That's the question. We should follow these disciples and be gracious to those that come into our church. And, and maybe they don't dress the same as us. You know, they don't come Sunday best. Or maybe, um, you know, you don't like how long their beard is or something like that. We all have these outer trappings, right, that we think about. But praise God for all the people that sit in our church right now that come from many places. And we've all sinned. And we're not held to those sins by Christ, and so we shouldn't hold them to each other either. We should welcome each other. New converts who are figuring it out and all. Third point here. This is the last point. We see Saul with another pattern. He's seeking out Christians everywhere he goes. Saul actively seeks fellowship wherever he goes. There are Christians everywhere. And in today's society, that can feel untrue. That can feel like, well, I know they're at some people's workplace, but I'm not sure about mine. 
I know at some people's schools there are, but I don't know about mine. God has his people everywhere. And maybe they're on different parts of their journey, and maybe they've been baptized as, a, as an infant and are just waiting for the gospel to be preached to them so that that promise can be made alive to them. Or maybe there's a mature Christian, but they're just quiet around you, and you never know. But if we're not making ourselves known as Christians, we're not seeking out fellowship in every area of our life, then we're missing out. We're missing out on what God has given us, which is each other, fellow believers. Saul sees the value in being surrounded by other believers. You know, this isn't just going to happen all the time. Certainly not in today's society. Christians aren't just going to come up to us and be like, hey, you love Jesus too, eh? I could just tell. It's not, it's not the default, you know? It's not the, we're not all Christians anymore. It's not the default everywhere we go. We're actually scared to say that, scared to ask that. We see someone with good morals and good value, and we think, well, they're just virtuous but not Christian. Ask them. Seek them out. Saul sees the value of discipling others, but also being discipled, being part of fellowship. So take that wherever you go. Find Christian community. Seek out the Lord and what he'll provide. I'm going to start closing out. We have our three points that we have kind of gone through in this passage. They're not super obvious. It's not, you know, this isn't a big memory verse that maybe you've gone through a lot or you've heard lots, but I think it's important. Saul is converted, okay? That is massive. But then what? That's what this passage is. This is Saul being brought back into the church, being reconciled with the church. And the points that we get this are, one, that God redeems and brings restoration to us, and he wants to use our gifts for the kingdom. Two, that as believers, no matter how mature, we have to show grace to others, other newly converted or unconverted even, be like the disciples and Barnabas and Ananias. And lastly, we need to chase down Christian community. Let's be on that team of being in Christian circles and encouraging each other. We are going to need it more and more and more. From the beginning of chapter 9 to here, we learn two things. One, that we should expect more of God, more from God, to the unconverted, those that in our lives we think are just too far beyond salvation, too far beyond God's redemption. That's number one. Expect more of God for the unconverted. And second is expect more of God in the newly converted. That someone who just met the Lord Jesus Christ can go on to be a history maker in the church and lead countless, and I mean countless others, to Christ and the true gospel.
this is what we need to remind ourselves that there's so many Saul of Tarsuses out there today who are richly endowed and gifted with natural intellect and character. There are men and women of personality and energy and drive. They have courage from their non-Christian convictions. They're sincere in heart, but sincerely mistaken in their direction. They're traveling with their hard, stubborn hearts and rejection of Christ. But they are not beyond his sovereign grace. They're not. There's no line to draw in the sand who is beyond his grace. So what we need is more faith. We need more reverence for our mighty God who saves. More holy expectation that will actually lead us to pray. There's not a single person that's too far beyond the love of God. And when he sets his sights on them, he will finish his good work. So we need to pray and believe that we serve a powerful God. Let's be reminded of that. We serve a God who doesn't just convert, but who strengthens and uses for his glory. And the result here is that we see peace in the church. The last part of the passage, there's peace in the church that stems from a fear of the Lord. And there's comfort. And they were continued to multiply. Let that be encouragement for us to go forth with fear of the Lord, knowing that he is our Lord, our Savior, and our King, so that we may have peace in our church, even amongst persecution. Peace. And so thanks be to God who sent his Son to us. Now this is the story of the Gospel. And yes, we just went through what was happening in Acts here. We went through... Um, how God was moving through the disciples and through Barnabas and through Saul and just the story of this early part of Saul's life, which is important when we go on to see more of him. I think that's great. I think we get to see a little bit more when we read it and talk about it. But we need to be reminded that this all stems from what we call the gospel, the good news. And that's that the God who did create us, who knit us together in our mother's womb, sent his only son, Jesus, to come down to earth, live a perfect life that we could never live, and to die for us. He lived a perfect, spotless life, and he was our sacrifice so that we could be right with God. We don't deserve it. We never will. There's nothing we can do to earn it. But we have a good Savior in Jesus. And so with that good and perfect gift, let us be gracious to each other and all those around us. God loves you so much. And he's got so much more in store for you.
be reminded of the gospel every morning. His new mercies for you. As Jonathan said, yesterday, today, and forever. He is good, he is powerful, and he is mighty to save. And so we give thanks. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift that is salvation. And Lord, we pray that if today we are feeling the weight of our mistakes, we're feeling the weight of our shortcomings, that we would give that to you. That all things would be yours, Lord. O oh Lord of our lives, would you redeem us? Lord, we ask that you would make us new this morning. Help us to feel the weight of our sin and the glory of our salvation. Bring us peace, Lord. Help us to have reverence and awe of you and all of your creation and all that you've given us and help us to be part of that redeeming and restoring here on earth your mission for your kingdom. Thank you, Lord.